folks, and welcome or welcome back to NTI's Japan Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Ziv Nakajima. I'm again, and this podcast was brought to you, among others, by Emil Gorgis, a Tokyo real estate agent who specializes in serving international or mixed nationality families looking for the perfect family home. So Emil's an Australian. He's been living here in Japan for the past two decades, eight years of which he's been actively buying, selling, and managing real estate properties in the city, on behalf of his own family and a great many happy clients. And he also acts as a mortgage broker on behalf of his clients. So his company has a dedicated loan officer in many of the Japanese mega banks. And if you're a regular listener, you probably already know him from our JREP, the Japan Real Estate Experts panel sessions. So you're probably already aware that the man is an absolute fountain of wisdom on all things related to real estate in Japan. And in particular to family homes, the greater Tokyo metropolitan area and mortgages. And most importantly, he's incredibly generous with his time and advice, which he's more than happy to provide at no cost or commitment to anyone asking. So if you've been thinking about buying your home in Tokyo, but you've been sitting on the fence for a while, or if you just want to have a chat in English with a real expert, drop him a line on emil.gorgis, that's E-M-I-L dot G-O-R-G double e s emil dot gorgies at tokyorealty.jp hit him up today and start exploring your options all right so we've got a bit of a special episode for you today for two reasons first off this is episode number 200 of the japan real estate podcast Thank you. Thank you. Yep. We've been here with you since late 2017. So just under four and a half years um, as of the time of this recording. And more importantly, you've been with us for as long as that too. We're now at close to 20,000 annual episode downloads or streams. And that number is going up daily, which means that we've got some seriously dedicated listeners. And more importantly, that you're finding value in the content that we publish, which is great. That's why we're here. And we truly appreciate you. So thank you very much. We would appreciate it even more if you could take a moment of your time to leave us a star rating and or a short review on the iTunes store. Here's one recent review we've received. Um, this one says, I'm a Japanese permanent resident with real estate investing and management experience in the US. So I only really need information specific to Japanese markets, not necessarily general real estate investing information and strategies. This podcast is absolutely perfect. The host cuts to the chase and he's up on the most current information and market trends. The episodes are clearly titled to access the information you need most. I've found nothing else like this. Thank you. So thank you too, dear reviewer. Really appreciate those words. And I wish I could credit you by name or nickname at least, but you haven't left any. So yes, uh, rest of us, our listeners, please leave us a rating or review on the iTunes store. We'd be more than happy to give you a shout out and read the review here on the podcast as well if you leave your name or nickname on it. Now, the second reason today's episode is special is because we've recently had a special guest here on the show. If you're a basketball fan, and particularly if you're a Japanese basketball fan, you definitely know who he is. But for those who are not following the sport closely, his name is Hugh Hoagland Watanabe. He's a 23-year-old Japanese-American, originally from Hawaii. Uh, while he was still living in the U.S., he played for the Portland Pilots and the UC Davis Aggies, uh, earned his bachelor's degree in finance, and then was recruited to Japan's national team in 2019. And then last year, he signed with four-time top league champions and six-time conference champions, the Yuku Golden Kings down in Okinawa. Here's a tiny taste of some of his top moments. 
In front, angle left. Here's Franklin Porter. Underneath, Hoagland wide open, jams it. UCC was 10 and 7 against the Pac 12, and, but Washington has emerged. Here's back up. Uh, St. Mary's is running their their zone offense and getting so many great looks. It is a nice move by Hoagland. Swigan, no. Hoagland, no. Who goes up with a left hand, gets it done. Still trying to find the flow here this evening. That may be one block away. Hoagland inside with a left hand. Now, Hugh is not only a world-class athlete, but also a very savvy young dude who's interested in the property market here. And he's on his way to start building a real estate investment portfolio. So he and I had a good long chat recently, and he's been kind enough to allow me to record it. We talk investment loans, terms and conditions for Japanese residents, basic market fundamentals, um, hotspot locations and how attractive or unattractive these locations are, how monthly condo fees work, what's involved in due diligence when purchasing those, uh, both on the building and the tenant side. We talk about the cost of renovations and repairs in between tenants. And then we also break down the purchase process. We talk about the advantages and disadvantages of purchasing tenanted versus vacant properties. A little bit about how our services work and when they're needed or recommended and also on when it might be a good idea to purchase under a company name as opposed to individual ownership what the tax benefits are there um, we branch into short-term stays monthly management and we also briefly run through some deal analysis spreadsheets uh, the same times that we use to evaluate potential deals so a really good thorough business call which i think you'll enjoy Buckle in, enjoy the ride, and I'll see you again on the other side. Okay, so yeah, so I've been reading your email again. You've mentioned that you've recently moved back to Japan, or I uh, moved to Japan. To Japan. Uh, okay, so you're you're not. A, I mean, the the Watanabe sort of uh, threw me off. I thought you were Japanese. I, I am Japanese. I grew up in Hawaii. My mom's from Japan. Uh, I do have a passport because I got her Koseki home when I was a baby. So. Okay. It just worked out that way. Yeah. But you've never actually lived here for any extended amount of time yet? After, no, very short term, like probably at most uh, four months during the summer. Um, but other than that, it's usually been back in the States, um, Hawaii or California or Oregon. Okay. Ma main reason I'm asking is because you've mentioned um, investment loans in your email. And for that, you will need to first have an income history in Japan, generated in Japanese yen into a Japanese bank account before the banks would consider that. So can you let me know a little bit about your um, employment status at the moment? So I play for the UQ Golden Kings. Oh, nice. I'm a, okay. I'm a professional wow. basketball player. That's phenomenal. Um, yeah, thank you. I, no, I mean, w will it be stable employment over a period of time? That's all I care about. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it should be, uh, barring some crazy injury, but yep. uh, yeah, I'm part of the national team conversation. I'm one of the top players in Japan, so um, I should be stable for a while. Okay. Well, once, I mean, for owner-occupied homes, if that was your family home that you were purchasing, then maybe one year would be okay. But for investment loans, they would usually want to see something closer to three years. Oh, okay. So after three years of steady Japanese income history, then yes, you should be eligible for a investment loan. 
Okay. Um, residency is obviously not an issue. I mean, even if you change jobs, you're still going to be a resident, I assume, right? Yes. Okay. So that, that's never going to be an issue. Um, and I mean, the borrowing capacity varies depending on the lender and uh, depending on your uh, annual salary, but um, you would normally need to put in 30 to 40% cash. Okay. Um, again, depending on which property you're going for, which would dictate which lender, it might dictate which lender you're going for. Like, for example, if you're buying something in central Tokyo, then vast majority of lenders would have, would be happy to lend for that. But if you're buying something that's maybe a little bit more, I don't want to say rural, because, you know, there's a lot of big cities in Japan that are not Tokyo. But if it's out of Tokyo, out of Osaka, then you might be going for um, maybe a more local lender. And then the terms might vary a little bit. Mm. But generally, it's safe to assume 30 to 40 percent uh, down payment. Okay. And I'm not sure how open they are to smaller cheaper properties i mean we have purchased on behalf of our clients we have purchased properties uh, of that profile that were under an investment loan so the seller had to first settle the loan but when our clients inquire these days they seem to be looking at properties that are um, more of the uh, like a, a small building type mm, like an apartment building yeah, so I'm not sure. Again, depending on the lender, depending on the property, and each agent that lists a property would have their own connection with a local bank or one of the mega banks. Mm -hmm. um, so they would always be able to tell us whether that property would be eligible for a loan or not. Mm. Um, okay. And another way to do it is, again, once you've, once you've got a couple of years of um, steady Japanese income under your belt, then the bank that you've been banking with on a regular basis would be a good place to hit first. Okay. So you would just walk in there, ask to speak to a, a loan officer and uh, ask them what criteria they have uh, for you to qualify for an investment loan. Mm. And then they might, they might just come back to you and say, okay, well, this and that locations are okay. This, you know, minimum, uh, maximum age of the property has to be such and such. Mm. And some of them, for example, would say it has to be a minimum of a building with four doors so that the income stream is varied. And so depending on the lender. And if for any reason, the, the bank that you'd be working with at that point in time, uh, if their criteria is too strict or for any reason, they don't do investment loans um, of the type that you're looking for, then the next step would be each and every property would have a listing agent and then that agent would be in contact depending on the size of the agency most of them would have a dedicated um, or semi-dedicated loan officer in one of the bigger banks or one of the local banks that they regularly work with and then they would be able to look into that for you mm, okay 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 so i think it's I'm important it's important to note also that um, as opposed to the states in most Western countries, there's no such thing as drawing on equity here. So your loans are really, your borrowing capacity is determined only solely on your income, on your salary. Mm. And when you've maxed that out, you've maxed it out. So the fact that you've already paid out half of a property and you can potentially in other countries would be able to draw on its equity and get another loan, that doesn't actually happen here. Mm. So unless your salary goes up, your borrowing capacity will remain the same. And if you have already borrowed, I mean, if you've paid out half of the loan, then yes, you can, you know, you've got the second half that you can borrow again. 
but it's not based on the equity of the properties that um, that you own or that you've got uh, other loans for. Mm, that makes sense. Yeah. Mm, okay, that's really that's really insightful because like you just ran through a ton of questions that I had. Awesome. Um, but okay, okay. So like this is more like a little bit more down the line a little bit because I've only been here for eight months, six months, six eight okay. months. So that's probably not enough time to get a big enough loan. Especially not for a loan, but I mean, for the little, um, you know, single or, or two bedroom units that you've mentioned mm -hmm. in your email, something that's around, uh, let's call it 30 to 50,000. Uh, yeah, that's for probably those, around. I mean, the, the entire amount is about the down payment you'd be putting on a building, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So those, like those are very like achievable cash wise. Yeah. yeah, those are like what I'm looking to start off with and yeah. looking for like, like cash cows, um, something that's relatively safe. Because I've listened to a couple of your podcasts, and you said Japan's more of a cash flow market rather than appreciation market. Yes, if and when it appreciates, that's great. But it's a bonus. We don't. We would. I mean, I, I know that some people, you know, have an inkling that a particular area might suddenly become popular, and then they sort of gamble on that. But we don't advertise that as a strategy to our clients. We basically mm -hmm. focus on cash flow unless they force, you know. You twist our arm and you tell us to go get something that's uh, more speculative. We'll do it for you. It's your call, but we wouldn't advertise that as a strategy now. Mm -hmm. I mean, look, it, it, there have been cases like if you look at Fukuoka City, for example, where we live. And um, when we first started doing business here, which was about 10 years ago, it was virtually unknown. Um, on an international scale, at least, but it had really good fundamentals. And indeed, over those 10 years, it almost doubled in value in central areas. Um, so if you happen to, you know, hit a spot like that, which for some reason is suddenly, you know, taking a giant leap forward, then yes, it could happen. But um, I mean, look, barring some unusual government initiatives that we might hear about, I wouldn't, again, I wouldn't bank on that. Um, another place that might, kind of place that might do that is, for example, you know how Niseko up in Hokkaido is a really, uh, really popular ski resort now. Mm -hmm. um, and it's very well known internationally. There are quite a few ski resort towns in Japan that are only known domestically, but are slowly mm -hmm. being discovered by foreigners, mm -hmm. uh, like uh, Nozawa Onsen, for example. So those places will probably gain in value a bit more sharply than other areas in the country. Mm -hmm. um, but I mean, each they're very unique profile. I mean, Fukuoka City is, is unique in that regard because it was a, uh, it's a big metropolitan center with lots of industries going forward and so forth. If you're looking mm -hmm. at small resort towns, really the only thing that you might be able to do there is maybe like an Airbnb or lodging business or yeah. something of that sort, not mm -hmm. a really typical residential market. Yeah. Um, we yeah. thought Nagoya was going to do that, but COVID sort of put a damper on that because mm -hmm. um, they were building the new, uh, the levitating, the maglev bullet train between Tokyo and Nagoya. Mm -hmm. And they were demolishing a lot of older structures along the tracks. And then that created a lot of pressure on the city center and um, vacancies were dropping. And it looked like Nagoya was really, but COVID um, really that a little bit. pretty much canceled that. Whether it's going to come back and, and continue to gain in value or not, I just don't know to tell you yet. Mm -hmm. Um, so again, that, all of those strategies are a bit speculative. So for that reason, we try to focus mainly on cash flow, which is very good in Japan. 
it's also yeah. a pretty stable environment cash flow wise so like if you think about the cash cows that you might get in the usa they're if they're not downright ghetto properties they're still going to be problematic at least on the tenant profile side mm. um, and here i mean low income earners i mean just means blue collar workers shift workers maybe convenience store workers single moms and um, but there's no there's no payment issues or, or forced yeah. evictions or anything of that sort that mm. you'd run into in other countries uh, yeah so i mean safer and stabler mm. Like I said, I listen to your podcast, and that's probably why I'm drawn to the Japanese real estate market first, because it's it seems kind of risk averse. Um, everything is, you know, done right, and people pay their stuff on time. And as long as you don't bother the tenants, they're pretty okay with you. Yes, it's um, quite reliable. But when you say bother the tenants in Japan, that could mean just the fact that you're a gaijin and you show your face around the property. That's already bothering the tenants. Like, they've, yeah. you know, it's hard for them to wrap their heads around it. And we've got other issues here. So um, because of the relatively elderly and fast, fastly aging population, you occasionally have a tenant die in a property, which is not something that happens much overseas. And um, you can't raise the rent because the economy is pretty stagnant. So we've barely been able to raise rents uh, since we've started our company. And in some cases, you have to drop the rent um, because there are new developments in a particular area. Um, and there are suddenly comparable apartments that are much newer available for similar rents. So that creates a lot of pressure on the older properties to reduce the rent. Yeah. Mm. Uh, and as long as, again, if the economy doesn't take a giant leap forward for any reason, which I assume would mean um, really much wider open gates of immigration so that the population, the working force actually goes up um, mm -hmm. or somehow convince Japanese people to have more babies. Um, but, but both of which are not, you know, again, not something that I would bank on. So unless that happens, um, if the workforce shrinks, the economy doesn't grow, salaries are not going to go up, which means that we can't, we can't hike the rents up as well. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. That makes sense. And then you said like, you know, people dying in their apartments. And then that kind of brings me into like another question of like, you know, if I do buy a rental property say for like 40,000, it's like a one bedroom apartment in Tokyo or something like that. Not in like Tokyo a, for 40,000, no. Okay. Okay. Like in somewhere, somewhere. Yeah. Um, what, what, what are like the upkeep fees, like, um, you know, cleaning and like, you know, putting money into like a big pot of like apartment amenities that they have to fix and stuff like that? So there are two factors there. You're in charge of the interior. That's all new. But the advantage of buying in a, in a condo block is that there's an owner union and a building management company, and they're in charge of the exterior and the common areas. Mm. And that includes the balcony, and that includes the uh, main door into the apartment, because you know how they're all exactly the same. Like, um, mm. it, it's all unified across the building. So that's considered common areas, and they're in charge of that as well. Mm. Um the monthly fees that you pay the owner union. So there's one uh, management fee component, which um, takes care of whatever needs to be done on a regular basis in the building. So cleaning of common areas, uh, if there's an on-site manager um, throughout the week, depending on the size of the building, there might be one there every day or there might be a few, a few days a week. 
mm-hmm. and you know the basic gardening the electricity uh, fixtures and the, you know the the kind of stuff that just goes on with regular management of a condo unit. So that's your management fee. And the second okay. component is your reserve funds contribution, mm. which is collected and goes into the uh, reserve fund pool managed mm-hmm. by the owner union or managed by the building management company, which is hired by the owner union. Mm-hmm. And then they use that amount that's being collected over time. Uh, they use to do the bigger items. So renovation, depending on the age of the building, that'd be every um, 15. And as they get much older, maybe every 10 years, there would be, need to be some bigger ticket items done. And those usually include the exterior of the building. So, you know, they put up scaffolding and they actually re-strengthen and repair and, and uh, clean up the exterior. It includes the roof, which needs to be waterproofed once every, again, 10, 15 years. Um, and includes uh, painting and anti-rusting of all the exposed iron parts. And every 20 years or so, maybe 25, depending on the age of the building, uh, the elevator systems need to be done as well. Mm. And those are all the big ticket items. So what we do as part of the due diligence when we look at a potential property that you might want to purchase is we try to correlate the total amount collected in the reserve funds pool with the renovation history of, say, the last 10 years. Mm. And then if we see that the reserve funds is totally depleted, but all of the big ticket items have been done in the last 10 years, that gives us peace of mind and low risk factor. Mm-hmm. Vice versa, if, you know, none of the bigger renovations were done in the last 10 years, so we know they're coming up soon, uh, but there's plenty of money in the reserve fund pool to cover for those that, that's again, that's a low risk profile from our perspective. Mm-hmm. If it's if it's depleted and there hasn't been any big ticket items done soon, then that tells us that um, depending on how much building fees currently are, so if building fees are currently very low, let's let's say you're paying just, you know, five or 6,000 yen a month in total, Mm-hmm. That probably just means that they haven't been collecting enough so far because probably building is maybe not as old as that and they haven't needed to collect that much. But in any case, because it's getting older, then we're assuming that they're going to hike those building fees up very soon. So they're going to have an owner union meeting and they're going to vote and they're going to say, okay, well, we've got a renovation plan for the next 10 years. We need to do this, this and that, which means that we need to collect yay money by that time. So we're bringing building fees up. And then everyone's going to vote on that. And most likely that's going to go through. So that's okay. That's a well-managed building still, but it means that your monthly yield is going to drop because if you were paying five or 6,000 yen so far, suddenly you're going to be paying uh, each year, like 10 or 11,000. Mm-hmm. Obviously your bottom line is affected. So if the total rental income is say uh, 40,000 yen, uh, instead of being 34,000 yen, it's suddenly dropping to 30,000 yen, right? Mm-hmm. So you might drop from... Uh, let's say 5% to 4% yield annually. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that again, that's not a high risk factor, but we do take into account that your yield will probably be affected in the next few years. And then if we do green light the deal, we might advise to maybe try to negotiate the price a little bit based on that, mm-hmm. because we're not, I mean, the yield that we're getting on paper at the time of purchase is actually going to be lower very soon. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the severe cases where we would probably say do not go ahead with this deal is if the reserve fund pool is depleted and there's no clear um, record of the recent renovation history, and then that to us points to um, mismanagement, not necessarily you know criminal mismanagement, but 
either the owner union or the building company uh, that they've hired are probably not doing their job too well mm-hmm. and not keeping an eye on things, not making sure. Sometimes you'll see, for example, that um, we, just, we just sold one unit, uh, bought one unit on behalf of a customer where the reserve fund has, you know, about eight, nine million yen in it. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's one million or one and a half million yen that is still owed by various owners. Right, like for some reason, it just hasn't been collected properly over the years. So uh, these sort of red flags, um, we might, depending on I mean, all things being equal, if the tenant profile is really good and it looks like, for example, the um, the owner union has recently replaced a management company because they recognized that they weren't doing too good of a job, then may, yeah, maybe things are on the right track, but we'd still advise to slightly discount. Um, but if there's no information whatsoever available to us that would indicate why this is happening, why it's depleted and why there's no renovation history, then we'd probably advise not to go ahead. That makes sense. So that, that that's sense. the that's the exterior. That's the building itself. That's a large part of the due diligence. The interior is on you. So if you've mm-hmm. got a tenant in place, like d- depending on what, you might be buying a vacant property and the advantage there is that you know that the interior was just recently done because when a tenant moves out, the the seller, the landlord would always do the interior. Mm -hmm. Um, But then you're buying into a few months of expenses before you can actually get a tenant in there. That makes sense, yeah. Uh, As opposed to a situation where you've got a tenant, for example, in place for, let's say, 10, 15 years, which is not rare in Japan. Um, so you've probably got a tenant who's going to be with you for a, you know, a good few years longer and you're, you know, you're buying into income from day one, but you want to take into account that if and when they leave or if they're elderly, if they go to hospital or if they pass away, unfortunately, um, then you've got a big renovation on your hands because they've been in place mm-hmm. 10, 15 years. Um, if they're elderly men, they might've been just smoking in the unit for 10, 15 years without opening the windows. I mean, they don't take super good care of them or at least not as good as the, uh, the ladies do. Mm-hmm. And so again, something to take into account. We might want to slightly negotiate the price down for that reason, right? Mm-hmm. And, and these are all valid reasons. I mean, we tell the seller, the realtor, that we assume that we're going to have um, renovation of say eight hundred thousand yen or one million yen on our hands if and when this tenant uh, checks out. And for that reason, we want to reduce the price by say one million yen, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Something of that sort. Um, but generally speaking, I mean, like the best case scenario would be if the unit has just been recently renovated because a tenant moved out and it's already got a tenant in there, which is maybe has been in there for a few months. Um, that's ideal. So, you know, the unit's in good shape and you've got a tenant, you're buying into income. That's perfect. Mm. And generally speaking, if and when a tenant moves out, your expenses on the one bedroom, the studios, the maybe one bedroom plus dining kitchen. So the cash cows your expenses would normally equate to somewhere between six to 800 bucks for a year of tenancy. Okay. Very roughly. So if a tenant moves out after say two years, you might be up uh, 1500 bucks. And that's usually wallpaper, a bit of flooring, maybe waxing, replacing a few uh, electric uh, fixtures, a few, um, you know, ceiling rubbers on the taps, that sort of maybe a shower head. That sort of thing. Once in a while, if the AC unit, for example, is old, it'd be a good idea to replace it before a new tenant moves in. Mm-hmm. Um, if the unit, for any reason, didn't have a, a laundry bay in it yet, 
Um, then if and when a tenant moves out, that's a good chance to install one because it'll be a lot more attractive, especially to single females who they don't like to wash their underwear uh, outside of the house. Mm-hmm. Um, that sort of thing. But usually I'd say somewhere between six to 800 bucks per year of tenancy. So if somebody moves out after 10 years, it's probably going to be a good few thousands unless they've taken really good care of the property. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. And then, all right. I guess the next question that I have is that, you know, we take account all those things and maybe we find a place that um, you guys recommend and I, you know, want to invest in and what is the process of like, you know, getting from looking at a property and liking it to actually buying it and actually receiving income? Like what's the buying process like? Um, so it's pretty similar to what you'd see in other countries. Um, whether you'll need us to be fully involved or not depends on your really nothing beyond your Japanese language skills. So if you're okay reading and writing uh, legal Japanese and kanji and you speak fluent Keigo, then you probably just need us on a consultation basis. Mm-hmm. Um, otherwise, because the agents and the sellers will not be able to communicate in English in the vast majority of cases, mm-hmm. um, again, central Tokyo, central Osaka may be the exception to the norm. But in most cases, they'll need somebody who's fluent in Japanese. Mm-hmm. And they're also not allowed to go through the contract and everything with you unless you understand every word that's written in there. So if I, because my Japanese is very fourth grade level, um, not sounds like level. me actually. Don't tell anyone. <laughs> <laughs> not to the level that's needed to you know negotiate that. But yeah. if I have like a team that you know does all my translations anyway for you know social media and you know they work with my agent, could I work through them to translate? For me, or do I have to go with you guys? It's not just a matter of translating, though, because the agent will want to occasionally pick up the phone and, and call you and ask you questions or receive some information from you. Mm-hmm. And then during the official uh, contract signing and review reviewing of the official documentation, that's done face-to-face with a Taken, an official government-certified document reader. Mm-hmm. So if somebody from your team can be your um, interpreter, they can come with you to the meetings, receive phone calls for you, um, and actually act as your contact person in front of all these third parties, then yes, that's doable. But if you're just talking about offline translations, um, that might work for initial contacts and a few emails, but once it gets to an actual um, discussion about a purchase, there needs to be someone who they can you know, pick up the phone and call and who can come to a meeting and actually review documents um, okay. with you or instead of you. Mm-hmm which okay. is normally why people hire us. But if you do have the resources to do that, uh, and there's somebody who can actually, if you can provide to an agent a phone number and they can call that number and have a conversation with somebody in fluent Japanese, mm-hmm. um, then that would work. But if it's going to be you answering and say, oh, wait, somebody will get back to you soon, that's, that's just not going to work with you. So. Okay, okay. I would, I would get back to you on that. But also follow-up question, if I do have an interpreter and I can make that work out, which I'm pretty 80% sure I can as a consultation service, like do the fees go down or are the fees the same as a consultation? And like, as you guys acting full facilitation, well, I mean, if which consultation service, we charge on an hourly basis. So our minimum is like a 10, 10 hour bank Mm -hmm. and it's pretty affordable. It's 3000 yen roughly per hour of work. Mm. 
Um, but it really depends on how many properties you'll be looking at and how many inquiries you'll be making and how much information you will need from us. So for example, our full facilitation fee for a property at the budget that you're talking about, the $40,000, dollars is going to be 5% plus tax. Mm. And we do have a minimum cap, which is 5% of 5 million yen. So the minimum that we can charge you is 250,000 yen uh, plus tax, so 275. And that's full, full facilitation. Doesn't matter how many properties we'll be looking at along the way. Doesn't matter how many emails we'll need to exchange, how many phone calls we'll receive. It'll cover you until you end up settling um, at that budget or similar. Mm -hmm. If you end up getting something that's more expensive, then we'll just credit or debit a little bit uh, post-settlement. But there's not going to be a time limit on that. So I, I would normally say that if you're looking at, uh, you know, one or two, maybe three potential properties, then yes, the hourly consultation might be uh, equivalent or less to the full facilitation fee. Mm. Um, but once you're asking us to do more thorough research and, you know, uh, um, run through websites and contact agents and get a lot of potential properties, and then we do due diligence on each and every one of them, um, beyond two or three properties, it's probably going to end up costing you more. Okay. That makes sense. Mm. But I mean, look, we can start once you get a once you get a, a rough idea of whether you do have an interpreter available to you. And again, it has to be somebody that's available for an agent or seller to pick up the phone, or a judicial scrivener, the lawyers. They need to be. They need to provide their phone number for them to answer the phone. It can't be done through you. And then hang on, hang on, because yeah, yeah. then they're, they're just gonna back off and enter Japanese freeze mode. So. Mm -hmm. It has to be somebody that's readily available to pick up the phone, and they do tend to call whenever they get back to the office, which can be six, seven p.m., can be Saturday morning-ish. Um, so I mean, just make sure whoever it is that you're designating for the job, make sure that they're aware of that in advance. Mm -hmm. um, and this is also the reason, by the way, that like if we do consultation on an hourly basis, then we're only going to be communicating with you or or with your representative, if you prefer, but only with the customer, right? Once we need right. to start communicating with agents and sellers and third parties, because in Japan, people don't just, you know, send email or leave you a message. They just, they, they call you. And if you don't answer the phone, they call you again five minutes later and they do it at all, you know, all hours of the day and night just because they want to ask a question. Mm -hmm. And that we can't quantify on an hourly because we'll be constantly writing down. We spoke for five minutes. We spoke for seven minutes. So we can't do that. Right. That has to be right. part of full facilitation. So the consultation okay. service is only going to be us communicating with you. Mm -hmm. And then we would give you our uh, opinion on properties that you might have found, and we would uh, tell you what questions you uh, want your representative to ask the agent, and uh, we would, you know, maybe provide advice on uh, how to mm -hmm. negotiate and how much to ask for. But you or your rep will actually have to do the communication with the third parties. Right. right. So if I were to do, um, I'm just trying to flesh it out a little bit. If I were to do full facilitation, yep, um, and I. Because I generally don't really have a good grasp on the real estate market in Japan. So I don't have like one to two to three properties to just send you and say like, hey, look at this. What am I doing here? Oh, we, we research for as long as you need. Yeah, we, we'll find you the properties. Mm -hmm. We can do that on both fronts. We can do that on the consultation. But if we do that on the consultation, then every hour of research is going to come off the hourly bank. Mm -hmm. uh, whereas with the full facilitation, we'll just keep searching until we find what you're uh, going for. Yeah. And then if I, if it's like the full facilitation, you're doing all this research, 
you would send these properties in like what an Excel file or in like a report write-up kind of thing for me to yeah. see, and then yeah. you would so explain. Let me share a screen with you. I'll show you what it looks like. In a second. All right, sweet, sweet, sweet. We interrupt this broadcast. I always wanted to say this. We interrupt this broadcast to tell you about Tokyo Family Stays. They're a short-term rentals company in Tokyo, and they offer a home away from home experience, which is just perfect for remote working, quarantining, or if you just need summer quiet to hide away from the world. So they offer a variety of options for families, for corporate relocations, or simply if you're transitioning between homes in Tokyo. Now the properties are super comfortable, tastefully furnished, fully equipped with all amenities, and they accommodate up to 10 people. So really the only thing you'll need to bring with you is your toothbrush and maybe a change of clothes. They've got fast, unlimited wireless internet, dedicated workspaces, and fully equipped kitchens, and they're just a delight to stay in, a fantastic alternative to Japanese business hotels, which if you've ever stayed in one, you probably know they're tiny, they're noisy, fine for a night or two if you're on your own, but long-term or with a family, you'll probably feel you're in a jail cell very quickly. So if you want to give yourself a sense of space and freedom by renting a real home with comfortable Western beds, including all the necessities like baby bedding, children's toys, high chairs, you definitely want to reach out to Tokyo Family Stays. They've been at it for over a decade. They're a fully licensed minpaku or short-term stay operator. And as a special bonus for our viewers and listeners, they're also throwing in a breakfast basket upon arrival for anyone who books and mentions the Japan Real Estate Podcast or NTI. And not only for guests, if you're a property owner, you've got an investment property that you want to tweak for higher profits or a holiday home that you want rented out when not in use via short-term stays, drop them a line today, see how they can help you maximize your property's income. And again, as a special bonus to our viewers and listeners, they're also offering a free audit of your existing short-term stay listings without any obligation whatsoever. So feel free to reach out to them at tokyofamilystays.com, well worth your visit. And again, if you're in the market for a family home in or around the Tokyo metropolitan area, Emil's your man. Don't be shy to reach out to him as well at emil.gorgies, G-O-R-G-E-E-S at tokyorealty.jp. All right, you're seeing this? Yep. Okay, so this is this is a customer who was looking for properties at a similar level to what you are. So we got 4.2 million yen here, 4.3, 4.7. So similar, similar budget. Mm-hmm. And then we give them obviously the address. We say which floor of the building it's on. Mm-hmm. Um, if there's any um, particular attractive features or caveats to look out for, then we point them out here. Mm-hmm. Size of the property, how many units in the building, what the rent price, whether it's tenanted or vacant at the moment, how much is being paid every month. And then we factor in worst case purchase costs because we're not going to know the exact purchase costs until we get closer to settlement. Mm-hmm. So we assume because the um, the legal and registration fees and the purchase tax amount uh, change depending on the official evaluation of the property. And that's going to be always mm-hmm. different to market price. We're not going to know what it is until we start getting documentation and we see the last property tax statement. Um, so we're assuming worst case purchase costs here. And then uh, insurance is also being assumed, but that, that's peanuts anyway. So it doesn't really matter. Yeah. It's not going to break a deal. Um, all of the monthly costs. And then we factor in for you how much you're going to be making on it. Um, I mean, depending on when the... Um, Depending on the exchange rate, the US dollar amount might fluctuate. But if you look at the yen, that's always going to be constant. Mm-hmm. Uh, weekly returns, monthly returns, annual returns, and then yield percentage. So this is 
based on an annual return of yay much um, divided by the price of the property, you're making six point, roughly 6.5% on it every year, right? Mm. And that's the type of property you'll be getting from us. As we progress and we do due diligence, so, so here, for example, when we're looking at listings um, that are on Japanese websites, we don't have due diligence information. And agents here, especially at the cheaper end of the market, don't go out of their way to start providing due diligence information before they've got an offer on the table. Um, just because, again, the market moves really quickly here. Yeah. So what we'll do in this case is if you, know, if you like this one, so you'll have a look at two or three of them. You tell us which one you prefer. We'll give you advice on which one we think is better. Like this one, for example, um, it's in Nagoya. Whoops. What are you doing? It's in Nagoya. It's vacant. Um, this is an assumed rent. In reality, it might be a little bit lower, but the location is phenomenal, right? It's right mm -hmm. in the heart of the city. Um, but again, you're buying into you're buying into expenses because it'll take you two, three months to find a tenant. You might mm -hmm. prefer this one. Uh, it's Chiba City. The location is, you know, maybe a little bit further, but it's already tenant. So we'll have this discussion about the potentials. Right. Once you've got a list of priorities, you say, okay, well, I'd like to go for this one first, this one second, and this one third, if they don't work out, mm -hmm. then we'll submit an offer to purchase. Mm -hmm. um, we'll tell you if we think the price should be negotiable or not, depending on location and, uh, you know, some mitigating factors, for example, like this one's uh, second floor in a five floor building, uh, probably doesn't have an elevator. So maybe, you know, some uh, G Basan maybe doesn't want to go up the stairs. What kind of, so we'll yeah. find some reason to maybe try to negotiate the price down if possible. And mm -hmm. we'll submit an offer at that price. Once the offer is accepted or renegotiated, so they might come back with a counter offer and then you make another one. Once there's a price agreed on and looks like it's going ahead, then we start getting the due diligence info. So then we'll find out who the tenant is, what the tenant profile is, when they moved in, if there was any payment issues, which is very rare in Japan. Mm -hmm. um, and most importantly, the building information. So the reserve fund pool, the renovation history and all of that. Um, once we have all of that, then we have another chat with you and you tell us if you want to go ahead, if you want to maybe reduce the price because we found out something that's maybe a little bit higher risk in mm -hmm. the due diligence and so forth. Um, and again, assuming that we eventually green light the deal or renegotiate the price and then green light the deal. And from that point onwards, in a two to four weeks, you'll be signing a purchase contract or we'll be signing it on your behalf if it's the full facilitation. And at that point, you'll be paying a 10% deposit. Mm. And then three to four weeks later, or sometimes two to three weeks later, a settlement occurs. You pay the rest of the money uh, plus settlement adjustments. So for example, um, the seller might have paid the building fees you know, two months in advance. So you need to credit him for that. Uh, he might've collected the rental income two months in advance. So he'll credit you for this, so mm -hmm. forth. And then the rest of whatever the uh, total ends up being is due on the day of settlement. And then the judicial scrivener confirms that, you know, funds have been transferred and they would be holding the title deed a day or two before that already. And then they go to the legal affairs bureau, they transfer ownership over to your name. And somewhere between three to four weeks later, you'll get your new title deed and your new registration documents. And but mm -hmm. but the income, assuming the property is being rented, or, or even if it's not, the income and expenses start accruing from the day of settlement. It just takes the legal affairs mm -hmm. bureau three to four weeks to issue the documents. Okay. Okay. 
So pretty similar to other countries, pretty straightforward process, mm. barring the, the cultural and language gaps and so forth. Right, right. That makes sense. And then, you know, one more comparison, I guess I kind of want to know is, um, especially, you know, because I'm planning to get into real estate as my income shoots up starting next year and um, as endorsements deals come start, you know, come in a little bit. Yeah. Um, what are the tax advantages for investing in real estate in Japan? Um, would it be better? I mean, obviously now I wouldn't um, think of creating like a company to put all this in, but not for um, this level of investment. No. Yeah, not for this level. Yeah. But you know, with my what's in my head, where I want to go in like five years, um, with more investments, you know, as the portfolio grows is a uh, you know a company recommended and then even for like an event like my first investment for this 40k um one bath one bedroom one room um what are the tax advantages now and then i guess what are the tax advantages later well the tax advantages is that you claim um for the first uh, first off, if you're buying a proper a single unit, it's probably not going to take you up a tax threshold. So there's probably not mm -hmm. a big danger in an extra two or three thousand bucks a year. Mm -hmm. But what you will be able to do is, and it, we're obviously not tax accountants, so we can put you in touch with an accountant who can advise on that. But right. you would be claiming your purchase costs and the depreci depreciation of the property um, as uh, liabilities or expenses or uh, losses, so to speak. Yeah. And you'll be claiming that against whatever tax, uh, whatever your income is and whatever you need to be paying tax-wise in Japan. Mm -hmm. um, so there are quite a few people, depending on how much they're earning, that do see that as a tax advantage. Mm -hmm. With a company down the track, um, companies, uh, they cost two or three thousand bucks to set up, which is not a big deal, but they, they come with two or three thousand, sometimes four thousand dollars a year in annual corporate tax and bookkeeping and accounting fees. Mm -hmm. um so unless you've got a portfolio or any other business interests that generate i'd say at least thirty thousand a year it's probably not worth it because you'll be paying more than 10 percent just in upkeep fees yeah even when you do reach that level then yes it's worth it because there's a lot more that you can claim once you've got a business in place there are more everything becomes an expense kind of thing Right, right. Yeah. And I mean, also, corporate, be... corporate tax is capped, whereas individual tax keeps going up after a certain level. So you start mm -hmm. off uh, lower, again, not knowing what your salary is, but let's say you had zero income in Japan and you have a company, you still need to pay a minimum of uh, $700 or 1000 bucks a year. And then when you do start generating profit, you're always taxed at 20%. Mm -hmm. Whereas okay. as an individual, depending on your income level, you start at 5%, then you go up to 10%, a little bit more, a little bit more, but it does continue to go up, whereas corporate tax is capped at 20%. So again, an accountant can advise you on the level of income and the level of expense claims that you can do that would make it profitable. Okay. Um, but as a general rule of thumb, I'd say unless you're buying into assets that are at least half a million dollar each, I probably don't think it's going to be very beneficial. Mm -hmm. unless there's some unique circumstance to your other income streams but again that's something an accountant can advise on yeah yeah that makes sense um any other questions 
I guess I have like those were like the main questions that I had, and then I just have like a couple like <laughs> questions that I'm just curious about. Um, obviously, I live in Okinawa. I just kind of want to know what the market here is like in your head. Um, we haven't seen your typical residential deals coming out of Okinawa to any significant extent. The place there, which we haven't been active in that market. Um, uh, I mean, our customers tend to be more uh, hassle-free, kind of passive income oriented. So, mm -hmm. but Okinawa is a good market for resort type short-term stays. So if you're interested mm -hmm. in running Airbnb apartments or a small resort hotel or something of that sort, and there's mm -hmm. management companies out there that'll handle it for you, but you will need to be um, more involved just on a decision and, and you know, tracking down financials level because you're basically running a business as opposed to a, a sort of passive residential investment. Right. Um, and also, also for uh, houses around the U.S. Army bases. So if you want to purchase properties there and rent them out to uh, military staffers, uh, that, that's uh, because they get a large uh, allowance, rent allowance from the Army, uh, from the military, I should say. I've been, I've been scolded for because some of them are Marines and they don't like to be called Army. But they get rental allowance uh, that's much higher than what a typical Japanese tenant would be paying for the same property. Um, so, but, but they come with their own uh, criteria. So they can't live in any kind. It needs to be of a certain size, need to be in certain distance from the base, um, needs to have um, certain uh, fire exit facilities, electric facilities and so forth that satisfy the military requirements. Mm. Um, and usually they'd be going for houses and houses tend to depreciate faster than um, because they're wooden structures. So you want to make sure that you're getting enough of your money back before the house becomes worthless kind of thing. Yeah. But you do stand to make a higher income if you go that way. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. And then if I were to decide to go the Airbnb route um, in the future, like three years down, which kind of interested in, um, what I heard like there's like a 180 day stay rule and like um, different, like a miking, miking. I don't know the Japanese word. Minpaku. Minpaku. Yeah. yeah. So a few things to consider. First of all, if you're buying units in a co-owned building, like the 40, 50,000 bucks uh, units that we were talking about, you're not going to be doing any Airbnb there because the owner union won't allow it. And they now have the legal authority to prohibit that. Yeah which they've been given in late 2018 to kind of revamp the legislation here then. Um, so what you can do is if you own the entire building or if you own a house, then it's a lot more feasible. Mm -hmm. And then you need to check with local municipalities to see what their local regulations and limitations are. Mm -hmm. So the basic, Mimpaku means basically, uh, let's call it casual short-term stay. It's mainly mm -hmm. oriented towards people who are, uh, renting out occasionally or renting out a room in their house, mm -hmm. that kind of thing. And that's mm -hmm. limited to 180 days a year on a national level. But some local municipalities have stricter regulations on that. So they mm -hmm. might say that you can only do it on the weekend, for example. Mm -hmm. Or they might say that you have to have management uh, management staff within, I don't know, 500 meters from the property 24-7. Mm -hmm. So each local municipality would, would have their own regulations, which would normally be stricter than the national regulations. Mm -hmm. 
we would need sense. to check. We would need to check depending on the area that you're interested in. We'd need to check with them, and there's also going to be like stuff like um, minimum distance from a public facility, like a, a library or a nursery or, or a elderly care facility, that sort. And then based on what the local regulations are, we would then go and look for properties that satisfy that. The other option is to, but again, that comes with setting up a company, is to apply for an actual hotel license, which is not a complicated procedure in Japan. Mm-hmm. But similar to Minpaku, there are certain regulations that you need to uh, comply with, like uh, something that looks like a reception area. There would need to be a certain ratio between the guest rooms and the common areas, uh, fire and safety regulations and so forth. Mm-hmm. It's all hurdles that we can definitely uh, uh, jump through. It's not it's not un- unfeasible, but we need to make sure that it's worth your while. But if you do go that route, then you can rent out the entire year. Okay. Okay. Okay, that's that's useful information. So hotel, <laughs> I mean, the content, when you say hotel, people think about, you know, a giant building with 100 rooms. It doesn't have to be that. A hotel or in license, as they call it, um, can be something as small as five or six rooms as well. Right. Okay. Or a um, small, small building with, let's say, up to 10 units that qualifies. Uh, depending, again, on local municipality regulations, it should qualify for a hotel license as well. Hmm. Mm. And then I guess this is my last question. Um, not only for like the one bedroom that I'm looking for, is this like if I keep going with this and, you know, do full facilitation fees for, you know, not just this one, but like the next, it's all good. Um, I guess my question would be after I buy this property and I'm, you know, taking an in income and if I do full facilitation fee, um, you know, contacting the union, you know, um, yes, stuff like that management. For, from a management perspective. Is that you guys um, If you need us to, to, yeah, if you need us to, okay. we'll do that. We charge a minimum of one hour uh, per month for that. So again, about 3,000 yen. Mm. And then we'll be the contact person for the building management company, for the uh, property manager, the guy who actually handles the tenants, guy or girl. Mm-hmm. Um uh, your your insurance company, uh, we can do all of that for you. Um, if you, you will probably, I'm assuming you've got a Japanese bank account. So you'd be collecting the rental income into your Japanese bank account and the expenses would be paid. Uh, the monthly building fees will go out of it automatically. Mm-hmm. So you'll, you'll have control of the finances. We'll just be the contact person for all of the third parties. Um, and if and when the property becomes vacant, then we'll work with the property manager to try and repopulate it as soon as possible. We'll give you some advice on maybe if it's particularly bad time of year on some extra expenses that might be worth your while to get a tenant in there quicker and so forth. Mm-hmm. So we're happy to do that. If it's just a matter of being the contact person for all of these parties, it's just a one monthly hour. Mm-hmm. Um, anything beyond that, like, for example, when a property becomes vacant and we repopulate it, so we don't charge you uh, any monthly fees while it's vacant, but we will be charging half a month of rent when we place a new tenant in there. Mm. And any unusual work that needs to be done, like um, filing insurance claims, um, going to court, like, for example, if a tenant does die in a property, we sometimes need to, um, through the property manager or through the insurance company, we sometimes need to apply to a court order to uh, unilaterally terminate the lease. Um, so uh, those sort of things we just charge by the hour if and when they need to be done. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, let see. 
have anything else? Yeah, I mean, I think that's pretty much all the questions that I have for now. Um, Try to think of anything else. Mm. No, I'll probably have more questions as yeah. uh, like later when we actually start doing this thing. But no problem. And I talked to my agent and my financial advisor about this too. But um, yeah, it sounds. Um, Sounds good. Anything that I missed that you could think off the top of your head or no? Uh, no, I just want your uh, I want your social media profile so I can follow you and, and uh, go fanboy on you. <laughs> uh, it's just my name for everything. Twitter, Instagram. Mm -hmm. Is it the, the Hogland or the Watanabe? What's the Hogland? Uh, it's the Watanabe. Ho Ho Hogland is my American name. I have okay. an American background. Hogland, okay. Dual. Yep. Sports. But you're, you're Watanabe on social media. Watanabe on social media. Okay, Q sweet. Watanabe. A great meeting you, man. Yeah, good meeting you too. Thank you very much. Thank you for this conversation. Anytime. Speak soon. Yep. Bye. All right. As promised, nice little deep dive into some of the basic and also not so basic stuff that we do on a regular basis here at NTI. Huge thank you again to Hugh Hoagland Watanabe, who I'm now going to be religiously following. And best of luck in his career moving forward. And if you, like him, are interested in property investment here in Japan, you probably know this already if you're a regular listener, but if you're not, you don't actually have to live in Japan to invest in the property market here. It can all be done remotely. In fact, about 80% of our clientele are non-residents from all around the world. So if you'd like to talk shop, don't be shy. Drop us a line on info at nippontradings.com or just in the comment section of wherever you might have found this episode. We're always happy to answer your questions. Now, before we go, we're also, as always, going to tell you and also link to our other sponsor's website. That's Hiroshi Shimizu, immigration lawyer and administrative scrivener. If you're thinking about moving here on a more permanent basis, or you're already in Japan on some sort of a temporary visa, and you want to switch to a longer term or permanent one, or if you're considering setting up a local company or a branch office of a foreign company, and you've got any sort of business or visa-related inquiries, or even if you just want to find out what your options are on any of these topics, feel free to contact Hiroshi Shimizu. You can find him at japanimmigrationexperts.com and he can help you set up a company, apply for any kind of visa, or just provide you with the best advice and extremely affordable consultation related to these topics. And he's already done that for many of our listeners. So feel free to reach out to him. Again, that's japanimmigrationexperts.com and you'll be well on your way. And that's it from us for today, folks. Hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Japan Real Estate Podcast. Do share it with your networks and please let us know what you think. So leave us a short rating or review on the iTunes store, on Spotify, or just drop us a line in the comment section of wherever you might have found this episode. We love hearing from you. Hope to have you with us again next time. And until then, have a great day or night ahead. Yoroshiku. Yoroshiku.